1 Kings chapter 10 is the scripture reading for this morning. 1 Kings chapter 10, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism, found on page 27 in the back of the Psalter. 1 Kings chapter 10, and as we read this, we'll develop this in the preaching as well, but as we read this, remember that the glory of Solomon's kingdom is a picture of heaven. So as we read this, think of that comparison. 1 Kings chapter 10. And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, either his great knowledge of God, or it could mean the extraordinary things God had done for him, but when she had heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her, answered her, all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not, which he explained, which he didn't explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom, and the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, the food he ate, and the sitting of his officials, his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up unto the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of all thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words, until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice." And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold, and of spices very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram, that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord, and for the king's house, harps also, and psalteries for singers. There came no such almug trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants, now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred threescore and six talents of gold. Beside that, he, beside that he had of the merchantmen, and of the traffic of the spice merchants, 
and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. And King Solomon made 200 targets, small shields, 200 targets of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went to one target. And he made 300 shields, bigger shields, of beaten gold. Three pound of gold went to one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. The throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round behind. And there were stays or armrests on either side on the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the stays. And twelve lions stood there on the one side and on the other side upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish, Spain, with the navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices, horses and mules, a rate year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. We'll have to look at that in the sermon. And he had a thousand and four hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and an horse for 150. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria did they bring them out by their means, by their agents. So these last few verses are talking about um, the, the trade enterprises that Solomon was involved in. By their means or by their agents or traders. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. It's on the basis of this passage of Scripture and on the basis of many passages that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. The connection might not be so clear, but we'll see that in the preaching. Lord's Day 52, we'll read the whole Lord's Day. Which is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, and besides this, since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us, do thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes, till at last we obtain 
a complete victory. How dost thou conclude thy prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all these we ask of thee because thou, being our king and almighty, art willing and able to give us all good. And all this we pray for, that thereby not we, but thy holy name may be glorified forever. What doth the word amen signify? Amen signifies, it shall truly and certainly be. For my prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are two halves to the sixth petition. The first half we looked at last week's Sunday. In the first half of the sixth petition, we have that prayer that God not lead us into temptation. Remember, in that first half, we're praying that God protect us and that God give us strength to endure and persevere in the midst of the battle. We are saying there in that first half of the petition, Lord, we are on the battlefield. We are fighting against sin. We hate sin. In thy mercy, give us the grace to endure. Protect us so that we do not fall into sin. Now, in the second half of the petition, we go one step further. Because in the second half of the petition, we make a prayer that God actually deliver us out of the danger we are in. Don't just preserve us. Oh yes, preserve us. But then also take us out of the danger. Don't just give me the strength to endure and persevere, but bring me to the end in victory over the, ba- over the enemy. Give me victory over this temptation. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And what we especially want to look at this morning is our longing for the complete victory, as the very last part of answer 127 puts it. Our longing for the complete victory over sin and temptation that will be enjoyed when Jesus comes again on the clouds of glory. In the sixth petition, we do have a prayer for an immediate deliverance from the sins we are dealing with right now, here in this moment. Lord, deliver me out of this temptation. Grant that I may find that way of escape out of the temptation. Deliver me from this evil. Yet, ultimately, in this sixth petition, we also have our sights set on that final deliverance that we will enjoy at Christ's second coming. In the sixth petition, we are really praying this. Come, Lord Jesus, yea, come quickly. Come quickly to realize the complete victory over sin and the devil. Come quickly to deliver us from all the attacks of the devil And come quickly to establish the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sin to fight against. Where there will be no more tears, no more trials, no more sorrows, no more pain. But where there will be everlasting peace and joy with thee in glory. Now we could really say that for Brother John, our brother John Kuiper who died this past week. 
This prayer was answered in a very striking and powerful way when the Lord took him to glory. He was delivered from evil. And I also think our study this morning will be a fitting way to bring us to the end of another cycle through the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a very fitting way to end the Catechism. We take as our theme, praying for deliverance from evil. And we look at three things. First, we look at the final deliverance, the final deliverance from evil, that complete victory. Second, we look at the urgent prayer, that this is an urgent prayer. And then third, we look at the reason for confidence. To understand what we're praying for in this petition, let's first get a glimpse of that final deliverance that is coming to us at Christ's second coming, that final deliverance from evil. And the reason we read 1 Kings chapter 10 this morning is because this chapter gives us a glimpse into that final deliverance. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we have the chapter that describes the glory of Solomon's kingdom at its highest point. And when we read this chapter, we need to remember that Solomon is a type of Jesus, and even this kingdom of peace and riches and prosperity is pointing us ahead to the kingdom of Jesus and the peace and prosperity and the glory that we will experience in the new heavens and new earth. There are two ways in which Solomon's glory is revealed to us in this chapter. First, in verses 1 through 13, you have the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And then in the second half, verses 14 through 29, you have a general description of the glory of Solomon's kingdom. So first, in verses 1 through 13, you have the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And the Queen of Sheba was a glorious figure in her own right. The Queen of Sheba ruled a kingdom in the area of the world known today as Yemen, at the southern tip of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Some would say she's from Ethiopia. I think the, the better answer is she's from Yemen, from the southern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. And the Queen of Sheba was one of the most powerful and influential women in the world of her day. 1 Kings 10 verse 2 says she was very rich. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train, a very great following, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. Down in verse 10, we read of the amazing gifts that the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. 120 talents of gold, handfuls of precious stone, and such an amount of spices that this amount would not be seen in Solomon's glorious reign ever again. The Queen of Sheba was a glorious monarch. But the Queen of Sheba had heard of the even greater glory of King Solomon, and she found it hard to believe the things that she was hearing. And so she decided to make the trip and see for herself whether what she was hearing was true. And that itself should tell you just how glorious Solomon's kingdom was. So glorious that its fame was being spread throughout all the earth. And when the Queen of Sheba arrived at Jerusalem and sat down with King Solomon, what did she experience? Well, first of all, she experienced the breathtaking wisdom of Solomon. We read in verse 1 that she proved Solomon with hard questions. She wanted to really test him to see whether what she had heard were true. 
We read in verse 2 that she communed with him of all that was in her heart. She shared her inner thoughts and her struggles and concerns with Solomon. And we read that Solomon was able to answer her every concern. It was as if Queen of Sheba began the sentence and King Solomon was able to answer it for her and finish the sentence for her. And Solomon didn't just have wisdom for the issues of the day, international politics and uh, 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 commerce and trade and plants and animals and warfare, but Solomon had wisdom regarding the things of God. Whatever the Queen of Sheba asked him about Jehovah God, Solomon was able to give her an answer. So the Queen of Sheba experienced the unsurpassed, breathtaking wisdom of Solomon. And then second, she also experienced the royal majesty of Solomon. In verses 4 and 5, we read of how the Queen of Sheba saw the temple of the Lord and the palace of the king, the way his officials were dressed, the way even his servants, his ministers were dressed She saw the cutlery on the table, the way that everything was covered in gold, almost as if the very streets of Jerusalem were paved with gold. And then in addition, she saw how King Solomon ruled his people with loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness perfectly as a man so that there was no challenge to any of his decisions because everyone could see that he had wisdom and his his judgments were right and good. And we read in verse 5 that when she saw all of Solomon's majesty and all his glory, there was no spirit left in her. She was completely overwhelmed and awestruck by the things she was seeing. In fact, I have the intention of sharing with my children a picture of, you can look on Google, the, the house of Lebanon. Uh, how, I forget how that's worded. Uh, the, the house of the forest of Lebanon. And you see there what Solomon's palace might have looked like according to the description. Fantastic. Glorious. There was no more spirit in her. And although the Queen of Sheba had heard fantastic reports about the kingdom of Solomon, she had to confess then that when she saw his kingdom with her own eyes, not even the half had been told her. This was the glory of Solomon's kingdom. A kingdom of peace and victory and prosperity and glory. Then in the verses that follow, verses 14 through 29, you have a further description of just how glorious Solomon's kingdom was. In verse 14, we read that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. In today's currency, that would be comparable to hundreds of millions of dollars, even a billion dollars that's coming into the treasury every year in gold. And that wasn't everything. That was besides all of the revenue that was coming in through his trade enterprises throughout the world. We read in verse 16 about the shields of gold. Today we would make bars of gold, but Solomon, what he did is he made shields of gold and he hung them up there in, I believe, in the the house of the forest of Lebanon as decoration. All the drinking vessels were of pure gold. There was gold everywhere. Gold was so common that silver was little accounted for. There was so much gold, silver was rather worthless in Solomon's day. The whole city was gold. This was quite literally Jerusalem the golden. This is the height of Solomon's kingdom, and it is breathtaking. And now the point of looking at all of this this morning is because here in 1 Kings 10, the glory of Solomon's kingdom, the the glory of Jerusalem 
is a picture, an Old Testament picture, a dim picture of the glory that awaits us in the new heavens and new earth as those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Solomon's kingdom was a kingdom of peace and prosperity and glory and victory. It was a kingdom built on the victories that God had given His people through King David. We need to remember there was much fighting that came before this. There was much bloodshed over many years. That was David's life, a life of warfare. But through the victories God gave David, the borders of Israel expanded and Israel became fabulously wealthy. And Solomon, we could say, his kingdom was the expression of the complete victory, the complete deliverance from Israel's enemy. It was a time when the swords could be put down, people could walk off the battlefield, and people could enter into a time of peace. And all of this is pointing us to the the final deliverance and victory that is awaiting us at Christ's second coming, when God's people will be delivered from evil once and for all, will be delivered from the enemy once and for all, will be delivered from fighting once and for all, and we will enjoy a reign of peace and prosperity and spiritual glory and riches. A, a kingdom and a glory that is built upon the warfare that Jesus carried out for His people on the cross of Calvary when He crushed the head of Satan. So everything we read of here in 1 Kings 10 is meant to point us to that complete deliverance and final victory in the new heavens and new earth. And what will that new heavens and new earth look like? Well, to put it in one way, Solomon's glory, this fantastic prosperity is only a dim picture, an earthly, meager earthly picture of the glory that awaits us in heaven. In fact, in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem is described as a city of pure gold, The streets are paved with gold. God's people are each wearing a crown of gold on their heads. That's heaven. And again, the language there in Revelation is is not meant to tell us what building material is used in in building the city. It's a picture. It's to give us a sense of the glory and the wonder of that blessed place. What will heaven be like? We might say, oh, I wish I could see Solomon's kingdom and his palace, and seeing the king sitting on his throne. And you see the apes and the peacocks, and the gold and the silver, and the spices and the aroma, and the food and the drink, and it's so glorious. That's only a picture of heaven, beloved. Heaven will be a place of perfect deliverance from all our enemies, delivered from evil in all its forms, free from all the consequences of sin, so that we're perfectly wise. We're free from ignorance and error. We're free from pain and and sickness and disease and death. Free from hunger and thirst. Free from dishonor and corruption. It will be a place of perfect holiness where we're perfectly devoted to the glory of God. Perfect freedom where the gates of the city don't have to be shut. There's no threats. There's no enemy. No dangers at all. No more sinful nature inclining us to sin. No hypocrisy among all the inhabitants. It will be a place where we will be perfectly conformed to the image of God and the image of Jesus. And it will be the place of perfect fellowship and communion with God. And perfect fellowship and communion with all those who belong to Him and His kingdom. You and I together. It will be a place where there is no earthly marriage. 
Because instead of earthly marriages, we will all enjoy the beauty and perfection and bliss of experience, experiencing being married to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ himself, as part of his bride. And it will be a place where we will be able to work and work with strength and valor. And we will be able to live and run and exercise our whole being in the perfect service of the glory of God. Perfect health in our bodies, perfect wisdom in our minds, perfect strength in all our being, perfect love in our souls, perfect peace in our hearts. And I could keep on telling you about the glory of heaven, what it will be like, but the reality is I could even spend the rest of my life behind this pulpit trying to tell you about it, but the reality is when you finally get there, you will most certainly say, as the Queen of Sheba had to say, not even the half of it was told me. Indeed, as 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 puts it, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it even entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. And when we get there, and when we see it all, we might be so overwhelmed that we might be like the Queen of Sheba. We might have no more spirit left in us, overwhelmed with taking it in. And yet at the same time, God will give us the perfect grace and the perfect strength of being so that we will be able to enjoy it without being overcome with weariness. And there will be no end to our fascination of the glorious glories of that celestial city. We will be able to take it all in and enjoy it perfectly. And what's the point now of saying all of this this morning? The point is when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's that new heavens and new earth that we are ultimately praying for. That's where I want to be, Lord. That's where I want to go. I don't just want to be preserved from sin. I want to enjoy perfection. I want to enjoy that final victory. I want to see my Jesus and see Him face to face and behold His glory. And I want to give Him that glory that I desire to give Him here below on the earth, but I can't because I have that sinful nature that's constantly cleaving to me. I want to go to heaven and see the glory of what Jesus, my King, purchased for me through His warfare on the cross of Calvary. That's what we're praying for in this sixth petition. Deliver us from evil. And really, when you have that final deliverance put before you, then doesn't this sixth petition, in a sense, become a very urgent and a very fervent petition? I want to be delivered. And that's how kind of we end our petitions. I want to be delivered. I want to honor God perfectly. I want to be done with Satan I want to be done with my sinful flesh. I want to be done with this world. It becomes an urgent prayer. Now, I'm not saying that we end up becoming discontent with God's will for us while we are on the earth. I'm not encouraging that. I think we understand. While God gives me breath, I will be content with His will for me on this earth. And I will use the opportunity I have right now to bring Him glory because I have opportunity this week to serve Him and give Him glory now. 
I will use the trials and temptations I experience to bring God glory. I will submit joyfully to to how He wants to bring glory to His name through my life right now. Yet, nevertheless, I do want to be with Jesus in heaven. That's what I want. Also. And I think a big part of it is this. I know how weak I am. I know how prone to sin I am. Truly, I am more prone to sin than I, that I can even appreciate. Then I can appreciate. And I feel it. We feel it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I don't want to fall into sin. I don't want to fall into temptation. And so I cry out, Lord God, my Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. No matter how glorious life here below may be, I am not satisfied with life here below. There's too many dangers, too many threats, too many battles. Whatever earthly joys I find here below, oh, they will be more than adequately replaced with the joys of heaven. Yes, I do enjoy honoring the captain of my salvation as I fight on the battlefield. And I know that he will supply me with every grace sufficient for every battle that I must face and any enemy he puts along my path. But I also know the battlefield is a hard place to be. Even as I fight with strength and as I fight to God's glory, I still pray, deliver me from evil. And now when you go back to consider the life of King Solomon, I think this stands out all the, very, all the more powerfully and all the more strikingly. Because here in 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon is clothed with all kinds of glory. There, there is no earthly glory, perhaps, that man has ever seen before that, than what Solomon had. Yet already here in 1 Kings chapter 10, there are signs of woe. There are signs of Solomon's eventual fall into deep sin. Here in chapter 10, Solomon is bedecked in perfect peace and glory. And yet the reality is there are signs that Satan is already leading Solomon down the path of temptation and destruction. Notice verse 26. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen, and he had a thousand and four hundred chariots, twelve thousand horsemen, whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots, and with the king at Jerusalem. In verse 29, we read of how Solomon went down to Egypt to buy horses. And what we need to understand and be aware of as we read that is this. Solomon wasn't supposed to be doing these kinds of things. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, already in the law of Moses, in the days of Moses, God explicitly warned the people that their king must not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt with the goal of multiplying horses. That's exactly how it's put. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. And yet that's exactly what Solomon is beginning to do. And we might say, after all, what else is Solomon supposed to spend his money on with all this gold that's just lying around? Right? And then notice verse 27. 
And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones and cedars made he as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And the impression that that verse gives as well as the other verses that is that Solomon begins to stockpile all his wealth. And again in the days of Moses, God warned his people that the king must not do such a thing. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, we read, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And yet that's exactly what Solomon begins to do. It's almost as if Solomon can't help himself. And as we all know, he doesn't just do this with the gold and silver. He also does it with his wives, multiplying many wives to himself. But the king must not do that kind of thing. And you see, Solomon is falling into temptation. Even in the midst of his great glory, Solomon should have been crying out to his God very urgently. He should have been crying, Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Because I'm still a sinful man. I'm still living in the midst of this sinful world where Satan roams. Lord, help me here below. And Lord, cause me, cause me to live with the kind of faith that Father Abraham had. So that I don't get caught up in all this gold and silver. But that I spiritually continue to live in tabernacles with my people. Living as a pilgrim, looking for that heavenly city. Not this earthly city, Jerusalem. Teach me to count my days, that I might truly apply my heart unto wisdom. And you see, that's exactly what we're praying for in this expedition. And it needs to be an urgent prayer, beloved. We saw it last week with Peter and his lamentable fall. Now we see it this morning with King Solomon. Both of these men are big names in the Bible. And they both experienced very lamentable falls. And with us too, we experience many temptations. Temptations in this life to give up. To give over to a rebellious spirit. To, to indulge in my lust because I can. To, to trust the arm of flesh. To start compromising the good law of God. We even have these temptations in our own homes and families. So that we are even a snare and a temptation to each other. And we need to pray together. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just think about someone who is sick or completely decrepit in the nursing home. They're so completely weak and fragile. We would say about such a person, give that person a break. Give that person some mercy. But that's not what Satan does. No, Satan presses still harder, attacking them with temptation after temptation. And then what do those elderly saints cry out in their old age? Lord, bring me to glory. Lord, I am ready to die. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That's this petition. Think of those who have to live with an ungodly person. Think of a person who's completely dishonest, who doesn't care about the truth, and who is selfish and self-centered in the very deepest center of his being or her being. This is weariness, beloved, to live constantly with that as your closest neighbor, perhaps. Always pressuring you to do sinful things. Always acting with an air of self-righteousness and, and condemning you. And the love of Jesus does not appear to be in their hearts. 
When you have someone like that in your life, what are you supposed to say? Lord, lead me not into temptation. But then I think the prayer also arises naturally. Deliver me. Deliver me from evil. I do want to be done with this. Sometimes I'm so weary and confused in these earthly relationships. I just want to go to heaven. Deliver me from evil. Think of church controversy. Think of controversy in your own homes. And somewhere in this whole controversy, there's evil. There must be evil. Because that's, what it's, that's what's explaining this unrest and the bickering and the fighting. And you just pray, Lord, deliver us from this evil. Whatever the evil is, we pray together, deliver us from evil. Help us, Lord. I think of some of David's experiences in the Psalms. David had to go through such a painful life, a life of constant warfare who had so many enemies and heartaches. And in a way, David was a, a type of Jesus in that way too, the man of sorrows. And you can imagine at times, David must have thought to himself, if only I could be in glory. If only I had wings. If only I had wings, for then I would fly far away and be at rest. It's like what we read last week with Jeremiah. If only I had a lodging place of wayfaring men in the desert, then I might get away from all of this evil. Remember that prayer from Jeremiah? That's what David prays. If only I had wings, for then I could fly far away and be at rest. And then what does David say immediately after? He says, nay, soul, call on God all the day. The Lord for thy help will appear. At eve, morn and noon, humbly pray. And he, thy petition, will hear. And that serves as more encouragement to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's so hard sometimes to walk by faith, isn't it? There's concerns we have for our children. There's concerns we have for other family members. There's the concerns we have for fellow church members. There's our own callings, our own responsibilities, our own besetting sins. We have so much need for wisdom. And we might say to ourselves, if only I had the wisdom of Solomon. If only I had the wisdom of Solomon. But yet there too, there would be dangers, wouldn't there? As we... As we see, Solomon himself would soon be falling into gross sin. Beloved, it's the very next chapter. The very next chapter, Solomon is bowing down to idols. The point is, this is a very urgent prayer. A prayer made from the depths of our being. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, as urgent and as fervent as this prayer is, we also, beloved, have great reason for confidence. And that's a very encouraging thing. That's a comforting thing. We pray this petition with urgency, knowing the danger, yet we also pray it with confidence. And the confidence is this. For thine is the kingdom, and thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever. That's how Jesus teaches us to finish our prayers, with confidence. God's is the kingdom. 
That means God is the king, and he is our king. And as our king, he cares for us. And as our king, he is willing to grant us these petitions for these good things. God's is the power. That means we know God also has the ability. He is almighty so that he can grant these petitions. He can, he, he can, he will deliver me from evil. And God's is the glory. And that is, we pray all these things so that not our name, but his name receives the glory. God's is the kingdom. Solomon's kingdom, just a dim picture. God's is the power. Solomon's power, just a dim picture. God's is the glory. Solomon's glory, just a dim picture. This is who our God is. This is who our King is right now. One who's far above the glory and, and power and rule of Solomon. That gives us reason for confidence, beloved. We pray the sixth petition with confidence. And, and indeed, we end our whole prayer with confidence. Jesus teaches us when we pray, begin with confidence and end with confidence. And what I would especially emphasize as we come to the end of our treatment of the Lord's Prayer is this. If Jesus himself has taught us to pray these things, if Jesus himself has taught us to pray, our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, then we can be sure that God will hear this prayer and he will grant our request. Because these are the prayers that God himself has taught us to pray. He will grant us our request. That's the confidence we have. And so at the end of our prayers, we say, Amen. It shall truly and certainly be. As the Catechism says, My prayer is more assuredly heard of God than I feel in my heart that I desire these things of Him. I desire these things of Him. But, but my desire, I, I'm sure of that. But I can be even more sure that God hears my prayers than that I desire these things. I have this confidence regarding all these petitions. He will cause me to rightly know Him in all His perfections and attributes. I'm asking this of Him. He will cause me to know Him rightly. He will rule me, rule us by His Word and Spirit he will preserve and increase His church and destroy the kingdom of darkness. He will grant that we learn to renounce our own will and more and more obey His will. He will give that. He will provide us with everything we need for our bodies. He will forgive our debts. He will preserve and strengthen us by the power of His Spirit. And along with that, he will bring us at last to that moment when we will obtain a complete victory and we will enter that glory of heaven that passes all understanding and we will be once and for all delivered from evil. We can be confident of this because he is the king. He is almighty and to him belongs the glory and this is how he will glorify his name. 
And so as we come to the end of this cycle through the catechism, what is our conclusion? We step back and we look at it all, and the conclusion is this. The salvation that our God has wrought for His people is indeed a glorious salvation. From start to finish, it's glorious in every way. We've seen our sin and misery. We've seen the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. The hope of glory in heaven. We've seen and experienced and studied the gift of prayer itself. Our God is a perfect Savior in every way. We are nothing but sinners saved by grace. From start to finish, it is all of Him and through Him and to Him alone. Indeed, to Him be the glory alone forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for teaching us this prayer and for giving us Thy Spirit so that we understand it and we experience it and we do pray it. Hear our prayers, Lord. Lead us not into temptation as a church, as families, as individuals, but deliver us from evil. And use this preaching even as uh, an instrument in Thy hand to grant this petition and to guide us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.